Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The big rally in Wall Street this week. Who gets the credit? The Fed, banks, or big tech? This is Wall Street Week. I'm Romain Basic in for David Weston. This week, Catherine Judge of Columbia Law School on what steeper capital requirements will mean for banks and their willingness to lend. What we really want is more lending during periods of distress and probably a little less lending when everything's going really well. Rock Creek CEO Afsani Beshloss on why the economies on mainland China and Taiwan are moving in different directions. One thing that President Xi has created which will be hard to undo is uncertainty. And former CNN President John Klein on the disruptive effect of AI on the business of media. AI can be a very useful tool. On the other hand, it can result in efficiencies for the studios.
The Fed appeared to score one of its first victories in the fight against inflation. Core CPI posting its smallest increase in June since 2021, but the Fed may hike again in July. It was very clear that inflation was and still is at levels that are too high for their comfort. I do think that the narrative, both for the Fed and also for markets, will now begin to change towards growth or towards employment. Meanwhile, China faces a different problem. Deflationary concerns prompting the central bank to step in. Going forward, the People's Bank of China will continue to provide support for small, medium, and private businesses. Media executives gathering in Sun Valley, Idaho, and one big deal was all the buzz. A U.S. court rejecting the U.S. government's challenge of that Microsoft bid to buy Activision. The company is now moving forward with some additional measures to appease U.K. regulators and finally close out that deal. On the one hand, everyone was talking about the Microsoft Activision deal, the efforts the FTC went to appeal uh, the, the decision by U.S. District Court. But strikes did loom over the annual gathering. Members of the SAG-AFTRA Actors Union joining writers who have been on strike since May, making it the first time that actors and writers have together walked out since 1960. Back then, Ronald Reagan was president of the Actors Guild and Marilyn Monroe was still gracing the silver screen. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change too. And earnings kick off with a bit of a sigh of relief on Wall Street. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup leading the big bank earnings on a high note, getting a big boost from the Fed's recent rate hikes. If we hit a hard landing, um, it's going to be very difficult for the banks, including J.P. Morgan, but that doesn't appear to be the case, at least today. A Goldilocks type of week for the economy, a bit of an everything rally for equities. The S&P 500 jumping more than 2% on the week. The Nasdaq surging more than 3 and the Russell 2000 index of small cap stocks coming close to a 4% gain. Discretionary stocks helping to lead the advance. So too did big tech and so too did home builders. Pulte Group and Toll Brothers closing out the week at an all-time high. Microsoft finishing a fraction of a percent away from a fresh record itself. But the biggest moves cross-asset-wise were in treasuries, commodities, and the dollar. The U.S. currency weakening to a 15-month low versus a global basket of its peers. And two-year treasury yields swinging more than 30 basis points from peak to trough this week. A volatility in that space that is expected to stay as long as the Fed remains in play. The big catalyst for these market moves came in the form of two big economic reports this week that showed U.S. inflation reverting back to its lowest levels in at least two years. And that is where we start today. Mona Mahajan joining us right now, senior investment strategist at Edward Jones, and Dennis DeBusher, chief market strategist over at 22V Research. And Mona, I'll start with you. You look at that inflation report, particularly when it comes to consumer prices, airfares down, used car prices down, egg prices, which we've all been obsessing over, for the last couple of years, finally dropping back to down to something that's some, somewhat more reasonable. Yeah, Romain, look, it was a nice week in markets for the bulls and certainly for investors and consumers broadly. You know, I'll highlight three quick things. And one, of course, is that CPI report that you mentioned. And in, in fact, inflation broadly surprised the downside in both the CPI and PPI prints. But the good news was in CPI, not only headline inflation, but we did see a bit of cooling in core inflation as well, driven by downward pressure in the housing market and even that non-housing services inflation that the Fed is 
tracking carefully started to ease as well. Uh, number two is the Fed itself. You know, I think markets are now looking for perhaps one more rate hike coming out of the Fed, and maybe they can step to the sidelines after that. That is welcome news after putting upward pressure on interest rates for the past 16 months raising borrowing costs for consumers and corporations. We are seeing a, res a resilient consumer and an economy that's holding in there. So we have a backdrop of lower inflation, perhaps a Fed moving to the sideline, and an economy that's holding up. That's good news for markets broadly. Well, Dennis, I want to get your thoughts here on those economic tea leaves. I mean, because these are kind of the two big components of this economic narrative, right? Whether inflation is coming down to a reasonable enough level, but also whether the economy is still in stable enough condition following five uh, percentage points of rate hikes out of the Fed. Yeah, you bring up a really important point in that if we have to go back to why markets have done so well. We know that inflation is coming down, but inflation appears to be coming down, for now at least, not the hard way. Uh, you know, it can come down in two ways. The easy way, which would be associated with a soft landing, or the hard way, which would be associated, obviously, with a recession. And so it is clear that it's coming down the easy way for now. I mean, it's the change. And part of the reason we saw this big shift in internals in the market, so small caps outperforming, like you noted at the, the top of the show, uh, retail stocks outperforming, deeper cyclicals bouncing, is because the housing data stabilized. And the housing data stabilizing because that is the tip of the spear when it comes to interest rate policy. We heard from three big banks, JP Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, officially kicking off the earnings season with better than expected results all around. Is this a harbinger of things to come for the rest of the banking sector and more importantly, for the rest of corporate America overall? Mona Mahajan still with us over at Edward Jones and Dennis DeBusher over at 22V Research. And Dennis, I'll start with you. I think some of the estimates coming into this earnings season, certainly not bullish, but they certainly weren't as bearish as maybe what we saw in the previous quarters. Definitely not as bearish as previous quarters, but your earnings revisions are still running around the 25th percentile. So you've seen a little bit of a deceleration in earnings revisions coming into the quarter. And typically when that happens, you beat by about two bucks relative to estimates. And at an annualized rate, that would get us somewhere in the 216, 217 uh, range for the year. So, uh, you know, coming in a little bit low on the estimate side, that's not too out of bounds relative to history, uh, but not as nearly as poor, and I was just saying anecdotally sentiment-wise, not nearly as poor as we've seen the last three or four earnings seasons where people really bear it up coming in. Uh, we got the bank earnings earlier this uh, morning, Dennis, or at least uh, three of the big banks here. Uh, there were some upside surprises there. I'm wondering, what are you expecting overall to hear out of, not just the banks, but overall the companies overall in terms of how their businesses are holding up? Shockingly well. <laughs> Relative to what we've heard and the fears over the last, uh, I guess, yeah, basically year, and particularly since the banking crisis, when people thought following that there was going to be this significant tightening of financial conditions that was going to lead to a sharp deterioration in the economy, I think you're going to hear from companies that things are holding up pretty well, consistent with slower growth than what we've seen the last two years, but expansionary-like economy. And we'll see what happens in the future with earnings. We'll see what happens in the future with the economy. But for now, we can see relatively okay earnings consistent with an expansion. Um, Mona, we've already started to see a lot of equity strategists and analysts start to ratchet up their expectations, uh, not only for overall aggregate earnings for the S&P 500, but, of course, your 12-month uh, price targets as well. 
Yeah, you know, look, I think uh, the earnings recession that we went through, and really Q4 and Q1 came in negative year-on-year earnings growth for the S&P 500. Q3, uh, Q2 earnings, which we're uh, getting right now, could also be the perhaps last quarter that we get a negative year-on-year number. And then we start to see improvement in Q3 and Q4 and really into 2024 as well. And so as we head towards the next 6 to 12 months, uh, we also know markets are pretty forward-looking. Uh, right now, 2024 estimates are calling for double-digit earnings growth. Now, we will have to assess the backdrop as we head into 2024, but if we are in an environment where you know yields are moving lower um, and the economy is improving from any sort of softening, uh, we could certainly see a rebound in earnings growth. So some of the, the momentum that we've seen in markets recently could be an expression of uh, the direction of travel of earnings over the next six months as well. So we certainly see progress there. Of course, we've moved pretty far pretty fast, as we noted, uh, across equities now. And so we think some period of consolidation makes sense. Perhaps we'll get uh, some earnings figures over the next few weeks that give us uh, mm-hmm. some reason to pause. But we do think uh, broadly the opportunity will come as we head towards the back half of this year. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see whether some of the moves that we see in the equity market actually start to broaden out just a little bit. Our appreciation to both of you, Mona Mahjan over at Edward Jones, Dennis DeBusher over at 22V Research. Coming up, one China, but two economies. We talk with Asani Beschloss of Rock Creek about the disappointing performance of mainland China so far this year and how different it is from Taiwan. Who knew in the beginning of the year that with, uh, with uh, AI becoming so important and the Taiwanese market would do so well? That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. One China, but two economies. The United States continues to go out of its way to underscore its one China policy, as Secretary of State Blinken did during his recent visit to Beijing. I reiterated the longstanding U.S. one China policy. That policy has not changed. 
We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. Even as the United States seeks to compete with that one China without coming to blows. I also believe that the United States and China should seek a relationship of healthy economic competition that is not winner take all, but with a fair set of rules would benefit both our countries over time. But recently, the economies of mainland China and Taiwan have been headed in very different directions, as the mainland finds it's harder than expected to come back from the COVID lockdown. I have been a little surprised with the degree of, of how quickly it's moderated. China is going to need to do more stimulus. Leading Beijing this week to undertake new stimulus measures, particularly to help its struggling property market. There's a lot of expectation that there will be more coming from Beijing to help the property sector. But the question is, what can the government actually do when there is so much debt at the local government level? While Taiwan continues to thrive economically, with the move to AI spurring on chip manufacturer TSMC and lifting the entire market. So why is Taiwan in this bull run? And can it last? One thing's for sure, stocks have been riding on this AI wave. But the head of the Taiwan Stock Exchange says it's not just AI that is driving market strength. As the pace of the U.S. interest hike slowing, and also the, the global economy remain the status, I think most investors will pay attention again on TWSE and the cash inflows are expected in the second half of this year. All of which makes the geopolitics across the Taiwan Strait just that much more complicated. And to take us through the geopolitics and the economics of mainland China and its environs, we welcome now somebody who knows it terribly well. She is Afsani Beshlas. She is the CEO of Rock Creek. Afsani, you come on regularly. We really value you on Wall Street. We thank you for being here. As I say, you've spent a lot of your career dealing with and around China. Start with what I would call mainland China right now. I, I think that if you go back to the first of the year, people expect it to really be a rebound year for China, given what had happened with COVID. doesn't seem to be playing out that way. You're so right, David. In the beginning of the year, the markets went up 20 percent. Uh, people expected markets to be up another 10 to 20 percent in mainland China. Um, with all the geopolitical issues going on, if anyone had guessed, you would think Taiwan would be down and the rest of Asia would be sort of so-so and uh, ASEAN would be doing relatively well. And if you look actually today, it's a very, very uh, different story. Number one, what you saw is, um, is as China came out of COVID, it, it has been taking much longer. Chinese consumers were supposed to be the big force carrying us out of COVID and, um, and sort of creating this huge growth in the economy. And they have been really scared because they went through their savings during three years and they are trying to save more. And the uncertainties um, that have been created both internally and by geopolitics is getting the Chinese consumer to save more and spend less. Now, at the same time, I should say, uh, what happened also is that in Taiwan, for example, where we did not necessarily expect this kind of rise of like 22, uh, 22% uh, year to date, who knew in the beginning of the year that with, uh, with uh, AI becoming so important, the microchip that is made in Taiwan would become even more important and the Taiwanese market would do so well. 
Last but not least, of course, you've seen a lot of outflows from um, U.S. and European and other global investors going out of China. If anything, the flows seem to be increasing coming into July than getting reduced. And, um, and a lot of very interesting phenomena going on on that point. So, Asani, as a long-time investor, you're the first one to know that markets go up, markets go down. You can't overreact to short-term developments. When you look at mainland, again, again, I'll call it mainland China for the moment, how much of this is a short-term thing, do you think, and how much are there larger underlying structural factors that may hold back mainland China from the remarkable growth we've seen over the last generation? David, I think the fact that you have 20% youth unemployment is a very big factor that's a long-term a long-term issue and that is not going to get affected by short-term monetary policy changes right so even though at the moment the monetary policy is uh, is trying to help push the economy forward uh, the job creation is much less particularly because these jobs were in the tech sector in services in areas that have got affected and have not been expanding as much as you would expect. Uh, the other area I think um, to look at in China that uh, has been affected is sort of the old age population and the demographics. That also, if you look long term, is a big issue with the aging of the population in China. With Secretary Yellen's visit, we saw we went from decoupling to de-risking and what the term she used uh, last week while she was in China was diversifying. I think every country having experienced uh, the issues, the supply chain issues that they experienced, including the U.S. during COVID is diversifying its sources of, uh, of input and trade. And we saw, for example, Mexico overtake China in terms of trade. Those, I think, are longer term issues as countries, including uh, the U.S., diversify trade sources. There is one big positive, though, uh, looking at China, which is that they have continued to invest in their green economy, not as much as they could or should. In fact, uh, Secretary, uh, in fact, um, um, Mr. Kerry will be uh, will be going there uh, shortly, and I think that meeting will be quite important. But even looking at their domestic uh, economy, the Chinese are putting in a lot of resources and investments into. EV into solar, as you know, they're still the biggest uh, supplier to the world of solar uh, solar facilities, as well as now starting to become the largest producer of um, EV. Afsana, uh, you mentioned the demographics issues in, in China. Uh, perhaps a related issue is, uh, for some time, China was something of a talent magnet. I remember going over there a few years ago, and they were attracting Chinese-American scientists back to mainland China to live with their families. Uh, is there a risk of really not altogether turning it around, but actually reducing the attraction of mainland China for talent from around the world because of some of the reforms, as he would put it, from President Xi? I think we have about 300,000 Chinese uh, students in the U.S., and a lot of them would go back to China. And there's a question mark as to whether that flow will be back to China or back, you know, some stay here, some go into other countries for exactly the reason you said. For example, AI, which is a very exciting area for some of the scientists you are talking about, is heavily government controlled, right? So if you are working for the larger state-owned enterprises and under direct government's supervision, you will be um, you will be benefiting from working on AI. But if you're working in the private sector, in some of the private sector companies, or the ones that were working with the venture industry in the U.S., 
um, the, that is something that is now a thing of the past. We've seen that a kind of cooperation between venture in the U.S. and venture in China dwindle. It's not gone. It's still some. There is still some going on, but at a very different level. So that will definitely impact the flow of um, uh, the the brain flow, as it were, into China. Asani, it's always so good to have you on Wall Street Week. Thank you so much. That's Afsani Bashlas. She is the CEO of Rock Creek. Coming up, media at a crossroads as leaders meet in Sun Valley in the middle of a strike with more uncertainty than they've seen for a long time. We go through it with streaming and cable executive Jonathan Klein. They know something is coming their way. They just don't know what. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, media moguls had their annual Allen & Company meeting out in Sun Valley, with the fundamentals of their business more uncertain perhaps than ever before. As people rush to a streaming world with uncertain profits, the basic cable model is melting out from under them, and strikes are threatening to shut down their businesses altogether. To take us through where the business of media is heading, we welcome now Jonathan Klein. He's the former president of CNN, now a media entrepreneur whose latest venture is Hang Media, a sports streaming platform. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So you know this business over a number of years from the point of view of cable as well as now streaming, you understand it. Uh, give us your sense of how fundamental the shift is as we, I guess, are moving away from cable pretty quickly into the streaming world. It's all exploded right in front of our faces. There's more change hitting media today than ever in the course of either of our careers. You're, you're, it's all accelerated so much and ultimately it comes down to consumers embracing the idea that they really do have total control in 
the media ecosystem. One of the things that strikes me is I certainly watch streaming services, but if you ask me what service it was on, I'm sorry to say often I couldn't tell you. I know what the program is. I don't necessarily know what the service is. What's the role of brands? We used to know ESPN. We used to know CNN. I'm not sure if we know the brands in streaming as well. The strongest brands today are the shows themselves and often the creators. You know, I was the media consultant for Succession on HBO. Congratulations. Th oh, th <laughs> them, they, they were an incredible group. I mean, Jesse Armstrong, who was the creator and showrunner, uh, a phenomenal guy and a wonderful manager for all of the managers who might be watching this, really understood how to empower a, a team to yield amazing results. I mean, no ego there. But he is sitting pretty because if you are a streaming service witnessing 24% churn year over year, you need retention. And shows like Succession or White Lotus or Andor or you know, Pick'em, they are retention magnets. That's what keeps users there. That said, users are completely promiscuous. I just saw a survey, I think it was Publishers Clearinghouse did a survey, and they found that only less than 7% of viewers plan to keep the subscription service that they are currently subscribed to. So what that means is consumers completely understand their ability to float from service to service in search of the shows that they want. But does that suggest there's a, what we would call in the financial world a maturity mismatch? On the one hand, you have to make long-term commitments to creators, to the actors, to the writers, to the producers, uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on these series. At the same time, on the revenue side, you don't have the assurance of the cable dollars coming in. And think about this. Added to that, the most popular network on television today is YouTube. Everyone's smart TV, you power it up, you can watch not only traditional broadcasts, but you can watch internet channels. So YouTube has something like 160 million regular viewers. Their viewership dwarfs Netflix, Disney Plus, Max combined. Let me add a further complication to this, and that's artificial intelligence. Right now we have the writers on strike, we've got issues about SAG after whether they go out. And as I understand, artificial intelligence and its role in the creative process is key to that element. What is artificial intelligence likely to do to all of this? So AI, and I ran an AI company that Apple acquired a couple of years ago, and it's now Apple's media intelligence division. Um, it, AI can be a very useful tool to creators, uh, enabling them to make projects that look every bit as good as the most lavish high-end you know, uh, uh, productions on any of the services, um, which is going to unleash another tide of creativity. On the other hand, it can result in uh, efficiencies for the studios and the networks so they can outsource some of the creative process. This is Jonathan Klein. He's the former head of CNN and now a serial media entrepreneur. The problem is they have to sell off assets in order to keep their capital up and the banks shrink. And as their asset base shrinks, they can't loan out money. And that's the real problem because banks are contracting and the marginal borrowers shut out and that kills the economy. 
To take us through the issues banks face in 2023, we welcome now Catherine Judge. She's a professor at Columbia Law School. So, Kate, thank you so much for being back here on Wall Street Week. Great to have you. Before we get to the question that Marty addressed about whether it's going to affect uh, lending or not, first of all, uh, uh, tell us why did Michael Barr think he needed this at all? What's the issue that they're addressing? So a couple things. One is we still haven't fully implemented Basel III in the United States. So there's been a lot of conversation for a long time around Basel III endgame and helping to bring the U.S. into conformity with some of the, the international standards they've agreed to. But, but Michael Barr has gone further. Vice Chair Barr, very shortly after taking office, said he's going to engage in a broad, holistic review of capital requirements. There's a whole host of requirements that were put into place in Dodd-Frank, modified somewhat since then, and, and he wanted to take a more comprehensive look of how they worked together, how well they were working, and the changes that needed to be made. So what the speech was a summary of what he sees as the problems and, and how he wants to proceed, and it is going to mean more capital for all the large banks. Uh, so let's go beyond the banks and the effects of this potentially and go back again to what Marty Zweig said, what, what Randy Quarles is saying now. Uh, I talked to Mike, Brian Moynihan of Bank of America two or three weeks ago, and he said it's a very simple thing for Bank of America. For every 100 basis point increase in the capital requirements, it means $150 billion less in loans. Does that sound right? And does that really have an effect on the real economy, as it were? Again, a bank CEO is going to know better than I am exactly how those trade-offs are happening. Take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt. There are meaningful trade-offs, uh, but two important qualifications. So first, when banks pull back, so first, hard, it's hard to know how much they're actually going to pull back on lending. When they do pull back on lending, another challenge that arises is not that that lending doesn't happen, but that lending moves outside of the banking space to less regulated domains. So a lot of what we have to pay attention to is where these loans are being made. But the other core thing to note is not all lending is of equal social value. Right. What we really want is more lending during periods of distress and probably a little less lending uh, when everything's going really well and, and assets are potentially inflated. And so one of the things we know from history is that better capitalized banks tend to be more willing to make loans during periods of distress, which is when we most need that lending. So my guess is Vice Chair Barr's response would be, even if we have a little less lending uh, during the, the good times, we're going to have more lending when we most need it during the bad times in ways that are going to make us overall better off. Kate, I'm not going to ask you to predict the future necessarily, but is this uh, possibly a candidate for one of those times we're going to need a little more help? We're just going into bank earnings season now, uh, this week and next week, uh, and there's a lot of anticipation about watching exactly default rates, uh, delinquency rates, reserves being taken, particularly in cons the consumer area. There's a lot of concern that we're going into one of those difficult periods. What are you expecting? What are you looking for? I think I'll be looking really closely at what we actually see in terms of the projections, right? So, so we want to know what the default rates are looking like, what is the rate at which they are accelerating. But a lot of what we want to see is what are the projections that the different banks are making regarding how much additional pain they see coming down the road. I think we're certainly going to see uh, some challenges. And the question really is going to be magnitude. Um, you know, we're helped a little bit by some of the recent inflation data and hopefully some stabilization in the economy, uh, which would mean a balancing out and a little more of a soft landing. Uh, but that can't be guaranteed. So there's still going to be a lot of noise in all the figures. But part of what we're going to be trying to figure out is 
is there a possibility, not just on the employment side, but the employment side as it interacts uh, with the, the lending and the credit of, of the ability of getting through all this. Okay, Kate, thank you so much. Always great to have you on Wall Street. We really appreciate it. That's Catherine Judge, she's professor at law at Columbia University. Coming up, trying so hard to get into the club that just doesn't want you. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Finally, one more thought. I refuse to join any club that would have me as a member. So joked Groucho Marx. But these days, some of those clubs are getting pretty picky. Take the club of NATO, for example. Sure, they moved this week to admit two new members in Sweden and Finland, even though Turkey had some doubts right up to the end. And that ratification of Sweden's membership does not mean the end of cooperation with Turkey. Far from it. And though they let two more into the club, they gave Ukraine something of a cold shoulder, saying they will consider it somewhere down the road without any indication of when, which didn't make President Zelensky or his foreign minister any too happy. These decisions, they make our path uh, to NATO shorter, and they could have done it faster too if there was a clear indication when the invitation to Ukraine would be extended. And then there's the club of the financial world, which recently voted long-term member Crispin O'Day off the island for allegations of some pretty odious conduct. We're in the process of, of moving away from, from that business. And activist short sellers have never truly been embraced by the club of financial players, something felt powerfully by Andrew Left, who's under investigation by the Department of Justice and the SEC. If people think there's this like underground network of short sellers who try to ruin companies or anything like that, it, it doesn't work. Like that. But whoever thought that the world of affordable housing would itself start to act like an exclusive club? We all know we don't have enough existing houses for sale. The new home market is benefiting from a, a very severe shortage of existing homes for sale. And that makes it awfully difficult for ordinary people to afford a house. Both single and multi uh, and house prices. You know, I do think we have an affordability issue that needs to be resolved one way or the other. Which could lead some aspiring homeowners to take some risks they probably shouldn't. A magnificent new home that they bought for a song. Who says they can't have it all? But that assumes they can get someone to sell them the house in the first place. This week comes news of the NIMBY, that is not in my backyard phenomenon, coming to none other than Levittown out on Long Island. Levittown was a series of housing developments built by William Levitt after World War II for returning vets. The whole idea was affordable housing for 84,000 people, mass-produced, government-subsidized, and with a price of just $7,900 a house. But time has moved on, and with it the price of houses in Levittown, now averaging over $575,000. Helped by local restrictions on multifamily residences, while New Jersey allows about 25 new apartment buildings per thousand people a year, San Francisco builds about 16. Out on Long Island, the number is just 2.3 multifamily units per thousand per year. It turns out that all those residents of once affordable housing are pretty picky about their neighbors. Get off my lawn. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.